Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Yes, welcome to the news. It's the end of the week. It's time for our cultural roundtable. The first topic, apropos of Mr. Orbison there, uh, is going to be crying. I think the crying that we see on stage and on screen, and also the crying that we do in the audience. Uh, before we get to that, uh, oh no, that, that, excuse me. Uh, yeah, but before we begin talking about that, I want to tell you what else is going to happen uh, later in the show. Well, uh, Sunday's the Super Bowl. Uh, and um, the halftime show is going to be, for the first time ever, all uh, centered on hip-hop, uh, as opposed to using hip-hop splashed in as a spice. We're not talking about that. We're also not talking about, although Irene Papoulis did pressure us to do this, uh, the use uh, of the Bengal safeties and countering the Rams' jet motion uh, offense. Uh, we're instead going to talk about the commercials. We've already seen a whole bunch of the commercials. You can see a whole bunch of the commercials. We'll talk about those. And then uh, our last topic on the show today will be uh, Somebody Somewhere, uh, set in Manhattan, Kansas. It brings together some performers better known for their work south of 23rd Street uh, in the other Manhattan, uh, but uh, playing much more subdued roles in uh, a dramedy, which will either praise or not praise, depending on who's talking. Uh, so uh, now that oh, I've set all that up and bumbled my way through it, our, our guests today, our panel, are Sam Hadleman, who works in music public relations and hosts the Sam Hadleman Show at Radio Free Brooklyn. Rich Holland uh, is principal at CoLab, founder of Free Center and commissioner on cultural affairs for the city of Hartford. Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. And yes, we are going to begin by talking about crying. This is occasioned by a piece by the New York Times' superb critic at large, Wesley Morris, uh, who meditated uh, on what he called the power of a good cry. Tears are central to great acting. A lifetime of weeping at the movies has taught me how much letting it all go in real life can matter, too. So um, we all were kind of sharing about this. But, Rich, maybe you can kind of get us going here. Uh, You summoned up immediately uh, a memory of crying at the movies. Oh my goodness, I have so many memories of crying in the movies. Um, one that uh, that actually really resonated with me, and it might be different than the one I shared earlier because it'll change every couple of minutes. Um, it was that scene uh, when Sam, uh, played by this dog, this German Shepherd, Abby, was strangled by, with, uh, by Will Smith's character, Dr. Uh, Robert Neville, if I recall correctly, in I Am Legend. Those were about the best tears uh, that I've ever seen in a movie, in a performer on the movie, in a movie. Uh, the stillness of Will in that, in that scene just set up the entire rest of the movie and what was going to go on there. Beautifully played, hit straight in the heartstrings, right? 
Um, yeah. And I think then, dogs are sort of cheating, right? I mean, you put a dog are. in there. I mean, people are going to cry. The actor's going to cry. The audience is going to cry. Exactly. But then there was this other point. The other, the other scene, the other experiences I've had with with crying in the theater was, you know, was the audience crying, and I have two examples of that that are just so incredibly, you know, uh, different. Uh, the first one is, you know, what I would expect, right? We were watching uh, Dancer in the Dark, and there was nobody in the theater at that point uh, other than uh, me and two other friends of mine were sitting in, in the theater. And by the time the lights went up, we looked at each other, and we were just this gooey mess of tears and all kinds of biofluid, um, just upset and and thrown and unable to speak uh, beyond that moment. The other time uh, that resonates with me was um, was going to see on opening day, Purple Rain. Hmm. And uh, there was this point where Prince was crying in the movie and the entire audience around me in, in, uh, in Copley Square um, uh, in, in Boston was sobbing along with him. And I could hear this woman in back of me emphatically pounding the seat, screaming out, you cry, boy, you cry, <laughs> you know, cheering on his tears. And it was just weirdly cathartic and beautiful and everything that crying is supposed to be about. Yeah. So, I mean, it is it raises some interesting questions, too, about why we cry. Do we want to cry? Are we fighting it off? Uh, Irene, how about you? How did you relate to Morris's piece? Um, Okay, well, I have a lot of um, first of all, I have to say, I remember my only I'm not much of a crier in movies, but uh, I have like such a vivid memory of I saw the movie Francis with Jessica Lange about this actress named Francis Farmer, who gets who is like a free spirit, wild person, but she's like sent to the psychiatric hospital and she gets given electroshock treatment and finally gets a lobotomy. And when I saw her after she got the lobotomy, her face, I just broke out into these wrenching sobs. I was in, it was in the eighties. I was in a theater in New York city and I was just out of control sobbing. And the person with me didn't know what to do. And the audience was kind of staring at me because it didn't seem, it seemed like a little overwrought for the experience. But I was just like the, the most cathartic sobbing cry that I still remember now all these years later. So but after that, I hardly cried in the movies at all. So I don't know. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's always interesting to find out what makes people cry. Um, you know, I read, but, um, I read one yeah. thing I was going to ask you, too, is uh, the, the thing that we're going to talk about in our, our third and final segment today, Somebody Somewhere. The first thing we see in that is Bridget Everett, who uh, she and she's working in a test grading center in the middle of Kansas. Uh, and she's reading an essay and she starts to cry. And as that begins to as that begins, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I know a, an actor is supposed to cry, I start to wonder, can they do it? Are they going to be able to do this? I mean, it's kind of like watching the Olympics and, you know, wondering if if they're going to fall during their snowboarding routine. That's true. And a lot of them do fall because you don't believe it. But I got I did believe I thought she was taking a test. Anyway, that's it's we could talk about it. But I thought she was taking a test. But as a teacher, I felt especially gratified that she was crying because she was actually grading a test. Um, So that was a different kind of crying. But um, yeah, but I, I think uh, Wesley Morris's point that um, we we well, he says we Americans have rarely known what to do with shows of emotion, and he which is debatable certainly. But then he he sort of points to theaters as a place where we can get it out, which I really. And then he also mentions funerals. You know, the places that we can't 
we can't cry publicly right now during the pandemic. And so I, I think that's a really interesting point that we need that. We need that kind of catharsis, that, that sort of public arenas for crying, or I think it's like cathedrals of crying or something he calls it. Yeah, Sam, uh, how about you? I, I, I should say that one of the ideas that I shared with our panel was for men, I think the older they get, the more likely, at least a lot of us, the more likely we are, likely we are to be uh, crying, particularly over things that probably shouldn't <laughs> even occasion crying. But you're young and, and full of life. So uh, how do you react to all this? Um, having me on a panel to talk about crying feels like having Kanye West on a panel to talk about humility. But I, <laughs> I have cried like a couple times. Um <laughs> like I'm not like a frequent choir, but when I was reading the piece, I was thinking about um, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I found that movie my senior year of college and there was like a lot of stuff going on with me. And my mom could tell. So she just like sat me down and she was like, just watch this movie with me. And I was like this 1946 James Stort Christmas movie. Like you want me to watch this three hour movie with you? And by the end, when he's like meeting up with all his kids, sorry for the 70 year spoiler alert. Um, when he like comes back to his world and he sees his kids and he like values his life, I cried like a, like a small child. And now every single Christmas I watch this movie and I haven't been able to get through it without crying. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there crying to me feels like a snake shedding skin. Like I don't do it a lot, but when I do, it feels <laughs> like whatever's on my back is like finally off. Oh, that was a beautiful analogy. I like that. Yeah, I mean, I shared with the panel, I'm I'm a pretty bad crier. I cry a lot. Uh, I cry at things that, you know, as you get older, you'll cry at like an insurance commercial or something like that. Uh, and, and I have occasionally been in, in, in plays, in theaters uh, for, uh, for plays where I, I think my crying was actually kind of a distraction for people around me, but I, I couldn't really wrestle it under control. But to me, one of the real marvels is kind of Bernadette Peters is sort of famous for just even in concert settings, singing some torch song, some, uh, you know, 11 o'clock ballad, uh, probably most notably Not a Day Goes By, and she begins to cry, and she can sing while she's crying, which strikes me as just a super human kind of thing. But but I guess, Rich, you know, one of the things that we, we want to do, we want to interact with culture that way. We, first of all, want to see actors who can do it. Uh, and, and, and could appear to mean it. Uh, one of the things that Morris mentions is broadcast news where, you know, William Hurt plays a guy who can make himself cry uh, in a way that strikes us as intensely phony. But in a way, that's what acting is, right? Acting is figuring out some way to make yourself cry when you have to. Well, yeah, but it's it's all about what you channel and how close to the surface um, uh, you're grieving, your loss, and your access to your emotions are, right? Mm -hmm. So it, to a certain extent, there's a technical aspect to crying, right? Um, I think that I cry differently when I'm alone than uh, when I'm amongst a bunch of folks. Um, uh, I, I did a performance recently where, uh, um, where I was playing a thing about a, a piece of grieving that I'm going through um, that led me to crying on stage. And I made it through the song, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which I wouldn't have made it through if I were sitting in my living room, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so I, I do think that there are some, I think you made an Olympic, uh, uh, Olympic um, analogy earlier. I think that there is a kind of um, scoring uh, to how we present our grieving, you know, and I think that there's a kind of public allowable 
people grieving and, you know, there are all these rules around it. And so I think an actor has so much that they could play with, right? Because the rules are rich and layered. Um, you know, you so, were so I, rich. You were playing music, you mean? Yeah, exactly. So and so it was it was it was genuine. You weren't you weren't feigning it at all, right? You were. Oh, I you, wasn't feigning that at all. Yeah. You know, but you know, it was also predictable, right? You know, I could predict as I was thinking through this performance that I was going to do that I was probably going to cry at this point. You know, and in fact, in the rehearsals before it, I was like, you know what? If I perform this piece right now in rehearsal, uh, it'll have less impact when I do it live. You know, so so the crying was like predictive. So the question that I have is, was it also therefore performative, right? Um, uh, it's, I think these are all really oddly complex questions. Um, uh, and I think that when I, for the most part, there's a suspense of disbelief that happens for me. When I see someone crying uh, across from me, I automatically believe them. I think it's real. Um, and uh, it immediately, like almost, you know, like a Pavlovian thing, touches this thing in me that wants to cry too, that wants <laughs> to just exercise that and to have the permission to, to rid myself of whatever this excess that I'm carrying is at the time. Well, I do think that Morris um, Morris goes a little so, bit too far. Uh, I just have to kind of speed this thing along a little bit because we're, we're going to run out of time here. But, you know, Irene, I do feel like Morris... He kind of, I think, overemphasizes the idea that we can't cry in public. I think that's an old idea. We all know that Ed Muskie kind of got knocked out of a presidential race for crying, and there was a female politician. Was her name was Patty Murray, some something like that. She also cried too much in public. But I think that's over. I mean, Bob Dole was a big crier. I don't think people made a big deal out of that. Um, well, he talks about Biden. You yeah, know, he thinks people scoff at him for crying, though. Yeah, I'm just not really, I don't know. I've actually cried really profusely on the air a couple of times and, and thought, oh boy, I'm just going to hear so much about this. And nobody even blinked, nobody, you know, I, I just don't think that the stigma against crying is, in, including men crying, is, is quite what, at this point anyway, what Morris thinks it is. But then I live closer to Manhattan, New York, than Manhattan, Kansas, so maybe I'm wrong about that. <laughs> hey, we need to kind of transition over to the Super Bowl commercials just to sort of keep things going here. So, uh, yes, a lot of the Super Bowl uh, ads that you're going to see on Sunday, assuming you watch the Super Bowl, are up already. Uh, they feature a lot of celebrities, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Although, Irene, you were surprised to find out that you don't have to wait for the Super Bowl to see those commercials. Yeah, I mean, that was the big highlight for me um, uh, uh, of any Super Bowl party I've ever been to has been like, ooh, let's watch the commercials. And, you know, it's going to be new and then people are going to be talking about it later. So it's very anticlimactic to be able to look at it online in advance. Why would I bother watching the Super Bowl aside for the aside from the half uh, the halftime show? So um, before we talk more about this, uh, and Kat, we're going to go to A5 here. Um, I mean, a lot of these Super Bowl ads are pretty visual in nature. They go by fast. Uh, this one has a certain amount of dialogue. If you want to wait for the Super Bowl, uh, then you know, turn off the volume for 60 seconds. Uh, this is a Super Bowl ad for Amazon's Alexa. It stars a real-life married couple, Scarlett Johansson and Colin Jost. Uh, and I think that's all you need to know. It's like she can read your mind. I love that we get to sleep in. Ordering fresh mint mouthwash. Extra strength. I'm thinking, I shouldn't get a spray tan, you know? Because that's on Wednesday. Activating blender. Funeral's on Monday. But what about the gold, Papa? 
Can't you see the treasure all along? It was here. Love the eye patch. It's when is the show open? March 8th. Setting reminder to fake your own death on March 8th. Ta-da. What the When you have to do those love scenes with hot guys, is that fun or is that like the worst? It's the worst. Tell me lies, tell me sweet so if you can pick up the conceit there, the notion is that uh, Scarlett uh, and Colin are having their conversations around the house. The ad goes on a little bit from there, too. Uh, and Alexa is kind of picking up some motives or, or, or alternative versions of, of behavior that they are harboring. It's like Alexa can read their minds. And I think, Sam, you and I had a similar reaction to this, is, which was really just do the Alexa people want to kind of hype that particular thing about Alexa? I just thought it was creepy. Like, I was like, oh, this is what's the name of that company in Terminator that ends up killing everybody? Like, those were the vibes I got. From Sky, that Skynet? I don't know. It's- yeah, Skynet. Skynet's mm-hmm. giving me, yeah, Amazon's giving me some real Skynet vibes. Um, but it's just like funny to see how Super Bowl commercials, like, there's always like a theme for like a couple of years. It was like, let's be as random and wacky as possible. And now it's like, let's make obscure pop culture references that we know people are going to tweet about and let's get. Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson and Pete Davidson. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't buy any of that stuff. I don't. I don't. I've never really cared about commercials like that. I understand why people. If you don't love football and you love pizza and you want to go to a Super Bowl party, like have fun, watch your commercials. But I'm. I'm here for Joe Burrow. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, just to be clear for people who kind of don't get this. So one of the things about the, the Alexa device is that if you say something, even if you don't say it directly to Alexa. Uh, Alexa is listening. Carolyn Payne, one of our regular nose panelists, had the experience of saying something like, I like bread in front of Alexa. And before she knows it, uh, stuff she's looking at on the Internet, there are advertisements, not just for bread, but for pillows that are shaped like a loaf of bread or something. I mean, Alexa just knew that she wanted bread in some form. And so, yeah, I don't know why you would kind of double down on that. So the other thing that I, I was sort of remarking to everybody, Irene, was that there, it, it does seem like they just gather up celebrities like like a, grum, a bunch of pebbles and fling them at the product. <laughs> there are some of these ads that have like five or six famous people in them. Uh, there's a Lindsay Lohan one for uh, Planet Fitness that has Dan- Danny Trejo and William Shatner and I forget who else. But, I mean, they're just sort of there to be celebrities, it seems. Well, and they're also there to be ordinary. I mean, I was thinking about the the Colin Jost and Scarlett Johansson. Like, I don't want them. I don't want to think about them being ordinary. I want to think about them having an amazing marriage that's really exciting. And you know, and so I th- I was just struck by the the lack of sexiness in the in the in the in the ads. You know, it's just kind of ordinary celebrities being ordinary, doing ordinary stuff that we do kind of, um, without the kind of fantasy that I would expect or want from seeing celebrities. So, um, yeah. So the, um, so Rich, maybe we should just Mm -hmm. pause and say, I think you were kind of just generally unimpressed with the overall quality uh, of these commercials. Yeah, I think that the writing was was kind of poor. I mean, there were a couple that I thought uh, stood out, but they've been standing out year over year. Um, uh, you can't go wrong, like you mentioned earlier, with uh, with dogs and, and Clydesdales, you know, um, and with uh, no dialogue. That's also a, a real boon. Um, but I think that these are all fairly um, predictable ads. You know, we've seen we've seen them uh, run a bunch of times. You know exactly the same kind of form 
that you know the same uh, the same kind of um, intellectual the same kind of intelligence is running through them, and um, and that's okay. I mean, you know, they're they're thirty seconds. We could just dive in thirty seconds to a minute. We could hang out with something that's familiar, get a little chuckle maybe, and and move on. Um, I don't really put a lot of stock in what ads are doing, um, uh, being in the business of, of doing marketing and, and ads and communications, uh, I carry a fair amount of skepticism, <laughs> skepticism about what it's all about, you know? Um, um, but you know, the ones that stand out, stand out as really good storytelling, you know, and, and making that happen in 30 seconds to 60 seconds is a, is a real art form. And, um, uh, the celebrity stuff though, as you, as we've all been pointing out, is it's overdrawn and that there's an aspect of the celebrity stuff right now um, uh, that seems to be counter uh, to the like, I like Mike notion. Yeah. Right? I mean, you know, yeah. there's a point in which we were up to these celebrities in a way um, that was Meredith. And now um, uh, what we're looking for is less even than their ordinariness. I would say, Irene, I think that we're looking at folks who have this sordid underbelly um uh that's popped up in social media and everywhere else um and uh and that's what's actually making them uh, uh normal is yeah and you have to be in the no yeah exactly. yeah i want to build on that in the no question so because i think sam you had a similar reaction um i mean one of the first commercials i watched today was one for i guess at&t cable or something. I, I don't know. Uh, well, that's part of the problem, too. I don't exactly know what yes. the commercial was for. But but I'm, I'm watching the commercial, and there's two women kind of on opposite sides of a stage at a high school reunion, and, there's, and they're looking at each other and kind of exchanging dirty glances, and then somebody else gets picked, I don't know, the queen of the reunion or something. And, <laughs> and if you don't know that the two women are Demi Moore and Mila Kunis, uh, and that one of them used to be with uh, Ashton Kutcher, who is not in this commercial, by the way, uh, that I, one of them used to be with Ashton Kutcher and one of them is now, and that might be why they would be exchanging these dirty looks. I mean, if you don't know all that stuff, the commercial doesn't make any sense at all. I'm not even sure if it, it makes any sense if you do know all that stuff. But Sam, you were sort of saying that, that culture moves at a kind of supersonic speed now, and you either keep up or you don't. Yeah, pop culture is a buying culture. That's how they keep you buying stuff, going to the movies, watching TV. I don't mean to sound like I, you know, walk around with a tinfoil hat, but you, we're all hogtied to it. If you want to be someone who engages in pop culture, who wants to know what the next hottest HBO show is, what the next hottest movie is, uh, what superhero movies coming out, what commercials are running, you have to like constantly be tapped in, like. That's, you, you think I want to go on Twitter every day and see what nonsense is going on? No, I'm programmed like that pretty much at this point. So that's why like, I unfortunately know who Demi Moore used to be married to and understood that commercial immediately because we're hogtied. We can't, we can't leave pop culture. It's, it's kind of like a lifelong contract if you, if you want to be in the game. But, you know, Irene, that's a very unusual approach to content. But I think it is the world we live in. I was saying, I've been saying a lot on the show recently that, you know, you have to watch 22 movies, I think it is, uh, to fully understand Avengers Endgame. I mean, there's sort of sort of callbacks and, and evocations uh, that, that connect to all kinds of Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Uh, Star Wars is no less challenging. Uh, I just made it all the way through the Book of Boba Fett, but I know there's stuff I'm not getting. 
you know, and now commercials are like that too. I mean, you know, uh, in fact, because, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, it's all about being in the club, you know, like if you're in the club and you know all the stuff and you know all the reference, you feel really good and you feel really connected to the other people that are in the club. But if you're not in the club, you feel really bad that you should, oh my gosh, I better, I better, I better learn about this or should I learn about it? Or I'm just out of it or depending on your personality, you know, like I I definitely felt out of it in terms of the backstories of a lot of the other, some of the commercials, you know, and, and it's interesting to think how, how, how upsetting that is, or, you know, whether it's upsetting to me or others, you know, and, and also who are those, are those ads targeting the people who are not like me, who are not really interested in the details of the, of the actual game of the Super Bowl, you know, or are they, are they appealing to the people who are watching the game and also feeling like they have to be part of the club with what's going on in the commercials. Yeah, it's it's just hard. It's hard to be an audience now. Um, all right, I think we need to take a break so we'll have time for somebody somewhere. Why don't we do that? We'll come back with more of Rich Holland and Irene Papoulos and Sam Haddleman. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. So welcome back to the news uh, with today with Sam Haddleman, uh, Irene Pavoulis, and Rich Holland, who I think might be rebooting his computer right now. So I'll go to the other panelists. First, we're going to talk about somebody somewhere. Uh, it's a, a new series on HBO Max. Uh, it is it has Duplass Brothers backing, uh, which is always a good thing. Uh, it's set in Manhattan, Kansas, but the cast is very Manhattan, New York City. Uh, Bridget uh, Everett, who's a legendary raunchy cabaret performer at places like Joe's Pub, uh, plays uh, well a woman from Manhattan, Kansas, which is also what Bridget Everett actually is. She's from Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, she is. Let us say a woman who does not appear to have spent her life spent her life counting calories, uh, and she, she is. Uh, it's hard to summarize the series, but she's kind of navigating a complex family dynamic, which includes uh, a sister who is dead, another sister who's kind of constantly trolling her, a niece who kind of worships her, a kind of dead-end job at this uh, test processing center uh, in Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, I know I'm leaving things out right now. And then she discovers a kind of second life there in Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, one of her co-workers, a man named Joel, played by the amazing Jeff Hiller. Um, no, Jeff 
Jeff Hiller, <laughs> Jeff played by the amazing Joel Hiller, is something like that. Um, he invites her to this thing that's called Sunday Choir Night. Uh, it's at a church, but what it really is is for the the towns and the areas LGBT community to do kind of theatrical stuff and cabaret singing. Uh, and that's the best I can do. Irene, what am I leaving out? Um. Uh, what are you leaving out? Well, I mean, her, her psychological struggle is, was, um, very interesting is, is a big part of it. Uh, and that's an interesting element. And I, I just have to say that I like Sam, I was like, oh no, it's a feel good comedy. I'm not really going to be that interested in it. But from the very begin, from the very, the moment it started, I was so sucked in and it's so good. So well done. Um, and I think there's the fantasy, you know, it, it is sort of like the story of the loser who gets together with a group of other losers, you know, uh, that it sort of has that feeling. But in such a it's such a wonderfully charming way that it's really kind of very, you know, really fun to watch. Super fun to watch. Yeah, Sam, I thought the series kind of hit its stride with the most recent uh, episode that dropped. Uh, it begins with uh, Jeff helping out with blessings of the animals at this church that they're all kind of involved in and and spirals into some of the other subplots there. And suddenly I thought the dramatic elements and the comic elements of the series were really beginning to kind of tie together and gel for me. But I'm interested to know uh, what your reaction was. Um, I bet you were very surprised to get an email from me about this like two weeks ago. I like just randomly watched it. I saw an ad for it and I was like, oh, this looks kind of interesting. I'm also, this is like a real trade secret, but I'm a sucker for middle of America sitcoms like King of the Hill is like my favorite show. I actually like the middle. Um, but what I like about this show is it's not apolitical like other shows are. I'm not saying it has like a political preference, but it definitely leans into some really serious topics. Hell, there's fentanyl, dealers, alcoholism, death. And I think that's the whole that's the whole game of being a dramedy, right? It's being able to play in both fields. If it's too funny but not serious enough, it's just kind of like a lackadaisical comedy. If it's too dramatic and not funny enough, then you're just kind of depressed on a Saturday night by yourself. Um, but I really like the assembly of the cast. I thought that Jeff Hiller's hysterical, Mike Haggerty, Bridget Everett, who I didn't know, like was really raunchy outside of the show. I had like I had no information about this at all. So when I saw what she did in her free time, I was like, oh, my God, is this the same woman? Um, but I also did love the last episode. I think the show is really fully hitting its stride. And, and Rich, how about you? I get the sense as we were emailing around that this hadn't really blown you away anyway. Well, I, you know, actually, I didn't think that it was going to blow me away. And uh, and the interesting thing is that that it just knocked me uh, knocked me for a loop. Um, the. Uh, what they're doing with grieving in this thing, which I think so many of the characters are still so deeply rooted in grieving mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and how they manipulate with their, how they use grieving as a vehicle to, uh, to explore, you know, how they connect with each other and how they connect with themselves is just stunning. Um, and that's the piece that to me, and, you know, and again, it might be where, I am right now, uh, um, I gravitated to uh, the modeling of grieving that's happening in, in, this, in this series and how it's all okay. Um, uh, and um, I also noted that, um, that it created a sort of out-of-bodiness out of uh, to, uh, to Bridget Everett. And, um, and I would guess my gut in watching this was that she wasn't first and foremost an actor. 
right? I assume that she came from some other uh, performance kind of background. And then uh, I heard that she was actually a, a, a stand-up comic and that made a lot of sense to me. But there's something about her performance that's all over the place. It's jerky, it's overdrawn. Um, it sits as a layer on top of the other characters who all act as one body in this one town moving in a kind of similar way. Um, and she comes and it's this sort of disruptive force just energetically uh, in the space and, um, and never really quite fits in. I think that the thought that I had about it is that she almost feels photoshopped into these scenes. And, um, and that's, to me, what a glorious expression of what grieving is. And I think it captured a thing that, that, uh, that the crying article missed, right? Um, that there's a piece about that's universal about it and so deeply individual and personal about the experience of grieving uh, that this thing nailed. And I, I'm enjoying watching every bit of it. Yeah, so um, I do, I do want to say that um, I did a little research into everybody. First of all, I should say I'm still struggling with the character. Okay, it's Jeff Hiller as Joel. Okay, so I saw Jeff Hiller years ago in a show called Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. It was at the public getting ready ready to move up to Broadway. He was part of this really sort of multi role ensemble. But I mean, you just couldn't stop looking at him, and he was hilarious. But he was mugging and he was camping it up uh, an awful lot. Uh, one of the other uh, characters in the series is uh, a guy who performs or a person who performs, I should say, uh, as um, uh, once again in kind of cabaret settings uh, in the East Village uh, and and uh, other venues around New York as Murray Hill, uh, who is a drag king. Uh, he, they, I think is the right way to say, they play uh, a character named Dr. Fred Rococo. Uh, and Bridget Everett herself is kind of famous for performing in these kind of skimpy outfits, although she's a very, very large woman, uh, and for doing things that I can't even necessarily describe on public radio. Uh, with male members of her audience. And all of them are really just dialing themselves way down. Uh, and, and Hiller, I think in particular, has found a real subtlety uh, and an emotional way of kind of anchoring this performance. But Irene, one thing that this does is, you know, you're not seeing, and you made this point as we were kind of chatting uh, and getting ready for this, It's we're not seeing kind of typical beautiful people uh, in a dramedy or sitcom. We're seeing kind of people who look like middle America. Absolutely. I mean, her father is really another good example of that, her father in the show. Um, and and all of the, the casting is really interesting. They all look, they're all very believable as being Midwestern, West, Midwesterners. It made me remember when Roseanne first came out and, and you know, like that was the first time, at least to me, that, that two quite heavy people were the stars of a show of a sitcom. And it was it was it was great to see to see to see that reality on the screen. Um, but I, I'm also thinking that I'm thinking too that this the show is really also about friendship. I mean, it's grieving and it's grieving it, it, it's grieving with other people or or feeling feeling the connection uh, with other people in your own grieving. You know, and it's grieving for people and it's also grieving for a lost, you know, like the self that one could be or wishes to be, but isn't and all that. Um, but in the company of friends. And I think those characters uh, are so, you know, it's just, it's just, so, it's such, in a way, it's just a wonderful fantasy of being lonely in the way that she's lonely and then meeting, uh, you know, which is what always happens in sitcoms, you know, getting together with these people that are sympathetic in a very 
extremely touching way to her and to her experience. And, and, and also honesty, you know, and the, the reason they are sympathetic is because they get to levels of honesty in terms of communication and the friendship that's, uh, that I also found really touching, you know, just really saying what's going on. And Joel, the Joel character, I mean, doesn't everyone wish he was your, your best friend? You know, he's just such a, such a wonderfully cheerful um, spirit of a of a human being. Although I feel like Joel is headed for some stormy waters here, based on the most re- re- recent episode that drops, he's he's about to go through, I think, his own internal crisis anyway. But yeah, Sam, just to build on what Irene's saying, I do feel like you know part of the journey of every single human being, just about, is to figure out where is home, where am I going to feel at home? Uh, you know, which group of people are going to welcome me and accept me for whom who I am and maybe help me grow into even something more than I have been. And I do think if somebody somewhere nails things, I think Rich is right that it, it nails grief and, and Irene's right that it nails friendship. But I think it also really nails that whole thing, the search we have for what's going to be our milieu. Yeah, for sure. And I've, I don't think I've ever been anyone who like has identified with one singular group. I mean, and I kind of like relate to it at some level. I mean, I grew up in like a, a nuclear family hotspot in Connecticut that our town logo is a farmer being pulled by an ox. So I get the vibes um, and trying to like, I feel like as I've gotten older, I've gotten a deeper appreciation for wanting to like find a collective and group that you don't have to like work at being accepted. Like, I, I hated that feeling of, like, analyzing myself and being like, oh, why doesn't everyone else want to look up to Alan Iverson when I was, like, in sixth grade? Like, and now, like, as an adult, like, doing radio, loving music, you know, being really into movies and finding, like, small little collectives of people who just sit there and listen to my ranting as, like, I, I don't know. I feel like that's what it's all about. Like, at first you're like, oh, why doesn't everybody accept me? And then you're like, hold on. I don't need them. I could just go find people who will just immediately get what I'm doing. Like, I, I, I don't know. That's what, that's what the show spoke to me about, at least. You know, in a way, Rich, it kind of circles back to what you were saying about uh, giving your own performance and, and crying during your own performance, because one of the ways that that like half of the cast of this movie seems to be able to find home and a feeling uh, of acceptance and a feeling of growth and self-expression and reconciliation with a lot of really troubling stuff is through performance. This this thing that they call choir practice or whatever the secret name for it is, uh, is this place where they can go and not so much talk about who they are but perform who they are well yeah so the the beauty of choir practice is everybody gets to be who they are it's this uh it's this idea it's this um thing that grew out of out of uh uh, the joel character has keys to the church and he's able to put together this sort of ragtag team of folks uh who come and just uh have a stage in front of them and get to express who they are in its totality, right? And there's an element of that that's beautiful, but, you know, it's not handled in a pat way, you know, where everybody who gets up is immediately, you know, lauded. There, there was this one scene for me that that was most uncomfortable uh, was when uh, uh, the Bridget Everett character got up and, you know, and found her readiness to just belt out you know, I think it was a Janis Joplin song, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, and she got the audience and everybody who was watching her wanted so desperately to accept her, and it seemed like that that was their you know first rule of Fight Club in this instance, right? Um, 
Uh, but she was pushing it to a place of like real awkwardness, you know, and bringing people in with her and just and creating this weird tension. And, you know, watching uh, how all of the performers realigned with this new level of acceptance of how this um, of how this choir club was going to work, you know, how we all evolved, how they all evolved to meet her where she was taking this thing was beautiful, you know, and to, to your points, uh, Sam, should we all find that community that, uh, that adjusts for us? Um, there's a piece of that also that for me is, is a suspensive disbelief, right? Um, uh, I don't know that we find that kind of community, you know, the, the one that, um, that accepts us um, uh, unilaterally um, and uh, without rules and, um, and uh, without bumping into uh, the, the no cross, the no fly zones uh, within that community. Um, I'm fascinated uh, to see what happens uh, when this community uh, of folks uh, gets into the place of tension around uh, their openness. All right. That's a that's a very interesting way of staging that. Uh, that's a good preview of coming attractions. Uh, well, um, have we actually played a clip? I don't think we played a clip here yet. So let's uh, uh, quickly do that. Uh, this is from season one, episode three. You are going to hear Bridget Everett as Sam and Jeff Hiller as Joel. Uh, and well, let's hear what this what they have to say to one another. Just keep three cars between us, okay? But there aren't any other cars. All right. Well, then hang back. Joel. Oh, wait. I'm just going to let this guy go. Joel, no, no, no. Go around or we're going to lose him. Well, no. I can't go around. Joel. What about oncoming traffic? You just said that there were no other cars, Joel. Hit it. No. No, 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 no. no. Go. It's risky. It's not risky. You can't hesitate. Just pull out and go around. You can do it. Don't hesitate. Don't, Don't hesitate. hesitate. Don't, Don't hesitate. hesitate. Hit it. Oh, yeah. oh, no. I'm sorry. I hesitated. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go. We're going to lose him. Go, go, go. Okay. Don't hesitate. Go. So, Irene, we're going to have to wrap this up pretty quickly, but um, that's a scene, I believe, where they're tailing uh, um, Sam's brother-in-law, who turns out to have multiple secrets. We won't want to. We don't want to say what any of them are, but she feels like he's keeping secrets. He is keeping secrets, and I guess that's maybe the last thing we haven't really talked about, which is, uh, although we're we're kind of dancing around it a little bit, this is also. Uh, I think a series about whether you tell the truth about yourself, where can you tell the truth about yourself and what do you need to know about the other people around you who aren't necessarily being truthful? How much are you paying attention? You know, the more you pay attention, the more you're going to see, but a lot of people don't pay attention at all or they don't want to see. Um, and I, I don't know. I was just thinking, I just want to pick up on too, on what Rich said about the, the, you know, it's not so easy to form a group like that or to have a group like that. And I think it is, that's why I think it's a, fantasy that you're going to have people that are going to see your secrets, call you on them. You can see theirs, et cetera. You know, I mean, yeah. Uh, and it's kind of, I'm also thinking that it's kind of an anti-pandemic show because they get to go out. There's nobody wearing a mask. They don't have to worry about it. There's no, it's not the world of the pandemic at all. And that's another fantasy. Um all right. Well, we should wrap it up right there. Just so we'll have time to make some recommendations at the end. Uh, the show is Somebody Somewhere on HBO Max. New episodes drop on Sunday nights. We all encourage you to watch. Don't give up. We don't need much.
And Kat Pastor is the technical producer of this show, making everything happen the way it's supposed to. Uh, and uh, Lily Tyson is doing the unusual job of producing The Nose, which is almost invariably produced by Jonathan McPants. Getting some R&R this week, senior producer Lily Tyson taking over with me today uh, on the panel. Sam Haddleman, Rich Holland, Irene Papoulos. We're going to make some recommendations right now. Irene, why don't you get us started? Okay. So first I want to recommend Sumo Citrus, which is a fruit I'd never had before. And it looks like a giant tangelo with a lot of bumps in it. And it's so delicious and oh. and, it's, and they're great. Um, and um, then two movies. One, one I saw Parallel Mothers and I actually saw it in a theater, um, which, you know, they had, they had real art ways. They had vaccine. You had to show your vaccine card. You had everybody wore a mask. It was, there was hardly anyone in there. It was felt very safe. And it's a, very interesting, serious movie by Alma Dovar uh, with Penelope Cruz, and it has it's 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 a it's a conversation starter um, in an interesting way. It's it kind of anyway. It's about sort of like the Franco, uh, the legacy of World War II and and the historical memory, but tied in with a whole other story, and it's kind of interesting. Um, I also saw Kimmy on on HBO, also on HBO, which is really a pandemic mm-hmm. movie with Zoe Kravitz, who just didn't fascinating acting job of somebody in the pandemic staying home and what it's like and what she was like. And so I recommend that too. Yeah, it's a Soderbergh movie. We'll probably get to it when McPants gets back. It feels like something we'll do on the nose. Uh, Rich Holland, how about you? Hey, so I've got two recommendations, both movies. Um, the first one uh, is one of my top five movies. And I talked about a bit today called Dancer in the Dark. Um, and uh, uh, it stars, uh, it features Bjork, uh, let's see, Catherine Deneuve, David Morse, Joel Grey. Um, it's a Lawrence von Trier movie, and, uh, and you'll cry, I promise. Um, and the other one that I want to recommend, I uh, saw it yesterday, and it is now uh, in my t- top five movies, which is a heck of a thing to, to get into. Uh, it is, uh, and if you haven't seen it yet, just get it get it in before it wins everything next month in the Oscars, I predict. Uh, the Power of the Dog. Um, uh, Jane Campion, um, what a movie, what a performance, what a series of phenomenal performances. What an incredibly uh, small story rendered bigger than life, bigger than mountains. Um, stunning, smart, economically uh, made. Uh, I don't know if it was economically budgeted, but beautiful. Go see it, see it, see it. Yes, and you can even track down a recent episode of The Nose where we talked about the power of the dog. Uh, And Sam Handelman, how about you? Uh, I'm going to recommend two of the best shows on TV. Uh, These are are stuff that I sent you in that roundup email I sent you like two weeks ago. Uh, Yellow Jackets is probably the best show on television. It's on Showtime. It's like uh, Degrassi meets Lord of the Flies. It's about this. 1996 girls soccer team that crashes in the Canadian forest on a plane and they have to like live out in the woods and basically uh, develop some like pseudo cannibalist society. It's unreal. Uh, I need someone to watch it. So if you do watch it, please reach out because nobody will talk to me about it. And then the other one is the next big show of our time, Abbott Elementary. Um, It's the show that takes place in a public school. Um, Phenomenal cast. It's going to be the show that rolls the next five to probably seven years on television. So, yeah, Yellow Jackets and 
and Ab Elementary. Okay. So uh, I should tell you that Yellow Jackets was also the subject of a fairly recent episode of The Nose, so you at least have that uh, to turn to. Yellow Jackets also stars uh, three kind of 90s stars, Melanie Linsky, Christina Ricci, and Juliette Lewis as the kind of older selves of the soccer players. Um, it also stars Sophie Thatcher who, uh, as a younger Juliette Lewis. Um, she's also in uh, The Book of Boba Fett, which we featured on a recent Nose. I just want to say I've gotten to the end of this. I'm not a Star Wars completist, uh, but I really thought this was good. I, I didn't understand things because I haven't seen all of The Mandalorian. It didn't seem to matter. And it's one of these uh, series where the final episode of this first season really paid off. A lot of times they don't. But there was kind of a massive kind of Western-style uh, payoff to all this. I'm also going to um, uh, recommend the podcast, The Trojan Horse Affair. It hardly needs my help. It's part of, uh, made essentially by the same team that made Serial, uh, plus uh, two new journalists who are doing the reporting on, on this strange letter that uh, disrupted uh, the educational process, the Muslim community, and, and the social fabric of Birmingham, England, and, and kind of England at large, too, to a certain degree, sowing xenophobia and paranoia and racism uh, wherever it went. The two journalists who report this, one's an American, the other one's a British uh, Pakistani Muslim. Uh, it it kind of turns into a buddy movie between the two of them, too. They have tremendous rapport and, and kind of a, a lot of fun getting to know one another while they're reporting this really vexing and outrageous uh, set of circumstances about which very few people are being truthful. So it's riveting. It's, and it's good in all the ways that uh, that, that serial team led by Ira Glass uh, and Sarah Koenig can make things good. So the Trojan Horse Affair, we may do that on a future Nose episode too. Meanwhile, thanks very much to Rich Holland, Sam Haddleman, Irene Papoulos. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, burning said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.